Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. afternoon and welcome back to another exciting adventure here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, High Plains, Daily News, Kinetic Hi-Fi, The Fix FM. Also out on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, oh the heck with it, you know what I'm going to say next. Just go to the name of the show, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick. And if you're watching up on YouTube and Facebook, you see the picture of Curtis is not there because Curtis right now is over at the VA uh, being treated, so hopefully he'll be able to join us a little bit later on in the cho- show. So I want to welcome everyone. I'm doing a little bit solo here for now uh, that's listening in on the chat room, also up on the other devices I'm on, including SHR Media, YouTube, and Facebook. Uh, and we've got a lot to talk about today. We've got two fantastic guests. We got Tamara Lee, and she's the founder and owner of Tamara Lee LLC, but she also has a show of her own called Trend On. She'll be joining us on the first half. And on the second half, we will be having Bruce Hartman, who was supposed to be with us last month. And unfortunately, there was a little bit of a mix up between his publicist and us <laughs> and, and the author. Um, he is the former uh, CEO of Yankee Candle. Uh, a Foot Locker of Cushman and Wakefield. And he's got a book out called Jesus and Company. So he'll be joining us on the second half of the show. We've got a lot to talk about and a lot to do. Uh, but before I go into our dedication, um, believe it or not, I do read the emails that you do send me. And this happens to come from a listener from the UK. And he writes, hello, Annie. I'm a new listener. I live in the UK, Norwich. I listened to a few shows, America's Trucking Network and Native Opinion, and decided to have a browse and found your show. Well, thank you. Uh, But we all have um, a say, which is good. Um, So far, I like the various ideas. I disagreed a lot with the English guy that was on. I don't know if you read emails out on the air, but I'm happy if you want to. So I am. Um, If you do, please say a get well soon to good friend Roger, who had a knee operation. Well, Roger, I know how that feels, because if I had several knee operations, so good luck and get well soon. And he writes further, get well soon. I will be in touch. Thanks a lot, Lee, a.k.a. Tiza. Well, honestly, I shouldn't say he, uh, because I don't know if Lee's a male or female, but in today's gender wars, who knows? So, Lee, thank you for the email. And, yes, I do read what people send and write out to us. All right, those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is not going out to one, 
but to three fallen heroes. Today's dedication is going out to Sergeant Eric, Sergeant William M. Bays, and Corporal Dillian, sorry, Dylan C. Baldridge. They were all killed on June 10th of 2017 while serving during Operation Freedom Sentinel in Pika Valley, the Nangarhar province in Afghanistan. And this is from CNN. And yes, I do also read CNN. The bodies of three U.S. soldiers killed in an apparent insider attack in Afghanistan returned to American soil. The flag-draped caskets were brought off the plane at Dover Air Force Base as Vice President Mike Pence attended, standing with his hand over his heart. The three men belonged to the 101st Airborne Division and were all in their 20s. The Pentagon identified them as Sergeant Eric M. Hoke, 25, of Baltimore, Maryland. Sergeant William M. Bays, 29, of Barstow, California. And Corporal Dylan C. Baldridge, 22, of Youngsville, North Carolina. They were shot during an attack on Saturday, June 10th of 2017, when an Army, Afghan Army commando opened fire in what's known as Green on Blue incident, according to U.S. officials. This is when members of the Afghan security forces turn their weapons on U.S. and other NATO soldiers who are training them and fighting along their side. The Taliban claimed responsibility for the attack, saying that an infiltrator had joined the Afghan army and attacked the American soldiers, according to its spokesman. I feel betrayed, Chris Baldridge, who was mourning the death of his son Dylan, told WTVD. Dylan's over there training people to take care of themselves, and they turn on us. The three U.S. troops were killed Saturday, June 10th, in the Aiken District area. Sergeant Eric M. Hoke of Baltimore had left for his first overseas deployment and was due home the next month, his father, Mike, told CNN affiliate WBAL. He joined the Army in 2013. Hoke married his high school sweetheart, and they had two children, ages five and three. He enlisted as a way to support his family and to serve his country, Hoke told the Baltimore Sun. He grew up to be a tremendous human being, just a great father, loving son and husband, Mike Hoke said of his son. He was very compassionate and caring and was concerned about people he, brought, he fought for, the underdog. He was just a tremendous young man. He is a hero, he told the TV station. The Army posthumously awarded him the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, Combat Action Badge, and the Army Commendation Medal with the second Oak Leaf Custer for his End of Tour awards. Our sincere prayers go to his family and his wife, Samantha, their children, and all of their family and loved ones in this time of grief. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan posted on Facebook, The governor had the U.S. and Maryland flags flown at half-staff when Hoke was laid to rest. Sergeant William M. Bays, 29, was born October 17, 1987, in Barstow, California, the only son of Timothy and April Biggs Bays. Sergeant Bays was a true American patriot and loved his country with great passion. He was also a loving and dedicated husband and father, 
and was a member of the Life Point Church. William enjoyed camping, traveling, and working on cars, especially his Jeep. He was an infantryman in the 101st Airborne Division based at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. He was also a squad leader, according to the Army. Bays leave behind a wife and three children, reported by the Stars and Stripes. The Army posthumously awarded him the Bronze Star Medal, Purple Heart, the Combat Infantry Badge, and Army Commendation Medal with one Oak Leaf Cluster for his End of Tour awards. Corporal Dylan C. Baldridge of Youngsville, North Carolina, was due to return home that summer after deployment. Family members told CNN affiliate WRAL he went to Afghanistan in October and was set to be back in August. Baldridge had always dreamed of being a soldier. His father told CNN affiliate WTVD he was up at 5 in the morning watching the military channel on TV. What kind of kid does that, his father, Chris Baldridge, said. Always impressed by Dylan. He was a motivated kid. Whatever he wanted to do, he was going to do it. Baldridge graduated from Franklin High School in 2012, said Russell Holman, the principal. He made an early commitment to the military during his high school career and maintained that focus and selfless dedication after graduation, Holman said in a statement. Our community has truly lost a hero. Baldridge joined the Army in 2013 and was assigned a squad leader. His father had told WTVD that Baldridge was a top soldier in his class and turned down an offer to become a ranger to join his team in deployment in Afghanistan. My chest was just out a little higher that day, beaming with pride, Baldridge told WTVD. The Army posthumously awarded Baldridge to Sergeant and awarded him the Bronze Star Medal, the Purple Heart, the Combat Infantry Badge, and the Army Commendation Medal with one Oak Leaf Cluster for his End of Tour Awards. Today's show is dedicated to these three American heroes. Sergeant Eric M. Hoke, Sergeant William M. Bays, and Corporal Dylan C. Baldridge. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve in the military from the birth of this nation through today and into the future. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women out there who serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate the show to all of them, and we dedicate it with the song by Todd Allen Herndon, my name is America. May God bless each and every one. Thank you. 
others gave it to me They believe in the virtues I stand for I respect for humanity Now I'm challenged by tyrants Who envy my power But their vicious deeds Become my finest Live on Blog Talk Radio and HR Media, High Plains Daily News, Connect High Five, the 6 p.m. out of Charleston, South Carolina. I'm your hostess with the most distant radio chick, Annie. And we got our first victim up on the line. I want to welcome our first guest, Tamara Lee. Good afternoon, Tamara. How are you doing today? I am doing well, and it's Tamara. <laughs> I'm Tamara sorry. Lee. That's okay. That's all right. Everyone pronounces my name all the time, so. I know. I think we did that for the last time. <laughs> potato, potato. I'll answer to anything. <laughs> well, it's funny because I learned a long time ago the heck with it. Whatever people want to say, I don't care anymore. Because my first name is actually Anne Marie, and people used to mess that oh. up so many, so many times, so badly. I got called Marianne, Mary Alice, Alice Marie. <laughs> so I just said, I'm sticking with Annie. It's easier. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, I have to apologize. My co-host Curtis normally is with us, but he got stuck at the VA, so he'll be joining us as soon as he gets back to his, his little studio. So I'm winging it as, as it is. But I checked out your website and your podcast. You've got a podcast also here on Blog Talk Radio called I Trend do. On. Uh, I yeah, do. tell us about that. So I started Tamerly's Trend On, engaging your audience to trend on you. How about that? 
Um, back, <laughs> I had, um, I know, it's like, it, it's all one complete thought whenever I say it. It's like, like my name is now Tamerly LLC because that's the name of my business. <laughs> it just seems to just flow with the rest of it. Um, so I started that. I went, I had an opportunity after teaching English language learning for about 10 years uh, for my school district, K-12. I had the opportunity to go teach a semester in Germany in 2011. And my older, my kids were mostly off, uh, had graduated high school. My youngest was a sophomore in high school. And she came with me over to Germany for a semester and communications. I have bachelor's in communications. And after our semester abroad, I had left my job at the school district to do that, but I felt like the opportunity was so important, not just for myself, but for my daughter as well. And so we up and moved across uh, the Atlantic to Germany, had a fabulous uh, six months in Europe and traveled and just had a once in a lifetime opportunity and experience. And so when I came back, it was like, okay, now what am I going to do? Because I had to, you know, continue to provide for myself. And I thought, well, I should use my degree. And and with the with my kids being two were in, I think in Portland, one was in California at the time, now in Colorado, um, one was still here. So they were all over the country. And I thought, well, if I can build something that is non-location dependent, you know, as mothers, we have to, especially working mothers, it's like our hardest to the kids and the families. And then you have to sort of work, work around that. And so I connected with a, a company called Link Local Network out of Chicago. They approached me to do a show with them on Blog Talk. They were kind of just launching uh, platform of, if you think back to 2011, uh, things had not switched over to where they are today. Social media was still relatively new. Um, you're still watching mostly TV. It wasn't all online. Um, so quite a difference of even in those few short years since then. And so I thought, okay, I'll give that a go. And that's how Tamerly's Trend On started. And then the Link Local Network sort of went a different direction, and I continued on with my show on my own. And I've just had, gosh, since I think January 2012 was our first episode and time. I don't know how many episodes we've had, and I've had just wonderful opportunity to talk to and promote and highlight so many great people, and I keep it really positive because I think there's enough negativity out. So it's an opportunity to have guests who come on and share their business, their endeavors, their mission, their projects, whatever, and it ranges from politics to lifestyle to entertainment all across the board. That's why I named it Trend On <laughs> so I wouldn't be, be committed to one uh, niche, but politics certainly has taken up a significant portion since the 2015, 2016 elections. I was approached by uh, another uh, politically focused show to perhaps bring my show over to their platform and do a solely political show. And I thought back then, I thought, well, I better find out what's going on here. 
And then that was the beginning of really taking the deep dive into the Trump campaign and getting on board the Trump train early on, being very passionate campaign and the country and the mega movement. And then my Twitter, that kind of fell all into place and just met with great people on the Twitter platform of really having a significant impact into the Trump election and now the mega movement heading into the midterm election. So there you go. Long well, answer funny, to a short um, question. Because <laughs> it's funny, because uh, I'm thinking back that uh, this August, I'll enter my ninth year doing this. And it started wow. off as a lark, very much, you know, like you, you know, you started off with something light. And then just after a couple of shows, we kept on getting a lot of calls and a lot of requests for, you know, talking politics. And these mm-hmm. were for conservatives asking to get a voice out and the message out. And I don't get a lot of liberals calling into the show. <laughs> Come on, guys, challenge me. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. right. right. Um, but it's open it, discussion. Yeah. And so, you know, I was there, you know, at the start of the curve, I guess you can call it, with the, the yeah, political talk on it. And uh, it, it, it's just blossomed. And I got to thank you know the listeners out there. Because, you know, with your show, the majority of people that do listen, listen to the podcast. You know, they don't get a Correct. chance to always listen live because I'm at an odd hour. You know, that I admit. That's a detriment to me. But I chose it because mm-hmm. that's my lifestyle. That's, that fits into my, right. my, my schedule. Um, but, you know, it, it, there is a hunger for alternative access to information. And this seems to be what it is. I mean, look at it recently. They had the, um, oh, good Lord, what the heck they call it, uh, those TV ratings, Um I oh, forget that I, I'm having a major brain fart. Nielsen, thank the you Nielsen very much. The Nielsen ratings, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Nielsen ratings just came out uh, recently for the April, and it was showing that out of the top five, three are Fox shows. And the closest CNN got to being to Fox was at number 24, where number 13 was another Fox show. They couldn't even match the lowest rating in Fox. They couldn't even come up to it. So, you know, wow. it, it, people are starting to turn it off and wake up to, hey, listen, we're being lied to by lamestream media, and it's time to get mm-hmm. the fake news out of our face. But, you know, I've said this since the birth of man. Since man learned how to talk and to communicate, there has always been fake news. So why is it so so prevalent today? It's not. It's always been there. You just weren't paying attention, I think. Correct. Yeah. Uh, To be able to see it for what it was is a particular bias and spin for uh, intended objective. And so if you what Trump has done with calling out the fake news is he's at least made us look at things more critically. And I don't know, you know, you're probably like me, you can remember back to the day of being in school, where your educators provided the instruction, presented the information, and you were taught to think critically and to look at a variety of sources and then be able to defend or argue both sides of that or if you chose a side, then uh, support that. They didn't tell you how to think or what to think. They taught you to think for yourself. You go through that process, and I think the, the mainstream media hijacked that and Trump and the mega movement was able to say, wait a minute, start 
thinking for yourselves. Use your logic. Think bigger. I don't know if you follow Q at all. That's one of his. <laughs> if we want to go down the Q rabbit hole. <laughs> Oh no! Uh, it, it, it's funny because people are now so accustomed to having instant gratification for everything. So if it's not in 140 characters or less, they're not going to pay attention. But you and I grew up in an age where you sat down, you stopped, you did your research. Now, I don't know about you, but my mm-hmm. parents had us read the newspaper, and at dinner time they would question us what went on in school. And you sat down for dinner, everyone together, and what did you read and learn in the newspaper? And we would have mm-hmm. a discussion at dinner. So, I mean, my two brothers are liberal. My sister and I are conservative. My parents were conservative. My, actually, I should say my mom still is. Uh, but, you know, you, you didn't get into massive fights like we have today. So the second someone disagrees with you, you're into a massive argument and fists are flying. That's not the way to have discourse. Civil discourse has gone out the window. Correct. Yeah, I agree with you. And I should say back to the um, your blog talk comment, one of the things I do appreciate about blog talk is the recording and the ability to share those podcasts that they live on. And I don't know if you're like that of thinking the videos and the Periscope and some of the others that are kind of trying to do. I know YouTube videos at first uh, were more the way to go. And now there's so many things, but I still like, maybe it is because of that newspaper to radio TV, old school. I still like having the the radio. You listen to it. You don't have to be focused sitting there watching it. Um, so I, I appreciate the Blog Talk platform. That's just an aside. Yeah, well, we well we use Blog Talk. We use Spreaker. I'm up on iTunes, uh, Stitcher. I found out that I, I'm finally up on iHeart. So I'm all over the place. Oh, nice. <laughs> so people Good just, for you. People just have to. Uh, Google Southern Sense and it'll pop up all over the place. There's another one out there, Tune In, that's also carrying the show. I, if I were to try to list all the places, I forget about it. <laughs> forget mm-hmm. about it. You can tell them in New York, I forget about it. <laughs> I know, forget about it. <laughs> that does come through. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, geez. I, I have a list of stuff I want to talk to you about, and one of the things is that you've got a new hashtag. Well, actually, you've been trending a hashtag called uh, Free Flynn. And with all the stuff that's coming out about the Mueller investigation, and as of yesterday, it was the one-year anniversary of him starting it, uh, the investigation, with the firing of Comey, of uh, Page, and half a dozen other people uh, because of uh, mishandling of things, uh, and I would say in some cases probably even criminal activity in the case of Comey, um, where, are, mm-hmm. where are we standing now with freeing Flynn from this bogus charge? Well, the, I'll give you the backstory to that hashtag for anyone who wants to take a little deeper dive into it. Um, and I have to give a shout-out to my friend Pat Copaletti, real name, Pasquale Copaletti or <laughs> But I can never get the East oh, he's Coast. A yeah, I can never get the East Coast Italian um, correctly. But he um, he and I worked together on that, along with um, the Flynn family, on that hashtag of what would make the best hashtag for the campaign to support General Flynn and his uh, exoneration from having been maligned by, you know, this whole Miller investigation. 
And if you go to my website, TamaraLeeLLC.com, it's T-A-M-A-R-A-L-E-I-G-H-L-L-C.com, under my blog, um, I think you might have to go a few down, but uh, we did a five-part series on working with Twitter and honing that hashtag clear Flynn now, capital C L E A R Flynn F L Y N N, that's capital F, and then capital N O W, clear Flynn now. And the reason, so the, the analysis in those five blogs gives the methodology of how we tested memes and how we looked at the different hashtags that were out there of pardon Flynn or uh, I stand with Jen Flynn, all the different, um, and I should double check that as I'm saying that now, I'm like, was it clear Flynn now or was it clear Jen Flynn now? <laughs> I got to check my own hashtag just to make sure I'm correct. Um, but the reason we came up with that hashtag is dated that a pardon implies, so the hashtag pardon Flynn now implies a a wrong done on the part of Flynn that he there was some presumption of guilt, and it even you know wades into the legal speak of pardoning someone for something that they should not have been convicted of or wrongly convicted, or they did it and they should now be forgiven of that offense. The clear Flynn now speaks more to an exoneration because it's been shown through the Miller investigation that General Flynn was innocent of the charges, that there was not the lies that he was framed to have uh, get, the, get the charges against him. And so by clearing him, removes any implication, both legally and morally, of guilt on his part. And we did, I, Pat and I did a blog talk radio too, so if anyone wants to hear more on that, they can certainly Google um, Tamara Lee's trend on with uh, Clear Flynn now. And you can get, uh, again, in addition to the blogs posted, get sort of the whole analysis. And, and Pat is meticulous in his analysis and breaking it down. So it's a study that then can be applied to future campaigns of if you want to. And what we perfected during the Trump election and now into the midterms is really leveraging the Twitter platform. How do you create a, a hashtag that is going to trend? How do we keep it top of trending? And what's the value of that? Is it just to, to say, oh, look at us, we got that trending? No, it's because with everything, when you can trend a hashtag, when you capture the essence of what your movement and mission is trying to say, like America first or make America great again, or hashtag MAGA, M-A-G-A, you are um, it's quality of the message. It's the quantity of your followers for each person who is tweeting that. And then it's the exponential reach. So we send that out into Twitter sphere and then it spills over into the other social platforms and you get an exponential reach. And I think in some of the analysis that we've done, literally up to, you know, millions of people from a, a successfully done Twitter hashtag campaign that you're able to re- reach and uh, get your message out. 
And as you said, with the, the newspaper where we used to, you know, read and take deeper dives and absorb longer paragraphs of thought, and now it's just like these quick impressions. Um, amazingly, our brains are adaptable to that. And even on an impression, which you can also, Twitter, when you do a tweet, there's the ability to right there on the Twitter platform to check your analytics and see how many impressions and engagements and retweets and likes and clicks on your hashtag there. So that's a very handy little tool in terms of feedback. And someone like Pat thrives on that information. I'm more organic of I'll do it. I'll, I'll apply the methodology to a tweet. I'll know how to strategically write it, shape it, add it, you know, add the, the certain at handles, um, get your messaging right with your memes, and then send it out into Twitter sphere. But it, it's useful in terms of our brains being able to capture those message impressions quickly and then absorb them and then have a lasting impact that then translates to action and call to action and support, whether it's more support garnered behind General Flynn in this particular campaign, or if it's like now being on the midterm election, if it gets people out to vote and they have an impression of which candidates are the mega candidates, then that by definition is what you would call a, a successful Twitter hashtag trending campaign. Does that all make sense? I've got a question for you. Yeah, I had a question for you, though, because there's the whole thing about shadow banning that came to light recently. And, yeah. you know, I'm proud to say I am shadow banned on a couple of different uh, social websites. One of them I went to post onto Reddit, onto my own page on Reddit. And it said I wasn't authorized to do that. And I'm like, really? So how do you get around a situation sub- such as that where you have a conservative like me that I find that when I do post, uh, I'm not getting the response I used to get, and um, I'm shadow banned in numerous different places. It's frustrating, isn't it? You're like, ugh, because you just want to get things. <laughs> That's my ugh. <laughs> get things done, and it does take time and effort and work and discipline to be successful. You know, you and I put in the effort on these social platforms to get our messaging out, and so it's frustrating from the user standpoint, which is part of the intent of shadowing. And I used to like not, I'm like, okay, well, some people kind of poke the bear and so they get shadow banned or I try and play nice in the Twitter sandbox and not, you know, as I told my kids growing up, if you go looking for trouble, you're going to find it most of the time. So don't do that. (laughs) And so I guess that rule on Twitter if you, but some of the things you have to be sort of outspoken and call out. And Project Veritas, um, I think a James O'Keefe, I don't know if you were following that at all, but they did an excellent job of exposing that the, the shadow banning is real. The, the conservative censorship was intentional and deliberate on the part of the uh, Twitter employees and uh, support and the company, and so I think, think, thankfully, by having done that expose, there is a little bit more accountability to uh, trying to keep it an open voice platform. Now, anyone who doesn't think they're on Twitter and that their one A right is with unlimited list, unlimited and should have no restrictions, 
at the end of the day, you still have signed on to use a private company platform. So you just have to keep that in mind. That's how I yeah. look at it. Well, there's a lot of them now springing up. You've got Gab.ai. You've got One Way. Mm-hmm. Um, Me Too. There's so many out there now that are trying to compete against Facebook. And Facebook has gotten so desperate that now they've got ads on TV trying to oh, rebuild really? oh. their, their 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 profile. I, I'm sorry. I I started falling out of my Archie Bunker chair when I saw these ads coming up. And they're such touchy-feely, such sweet ads. And it's like, we know the truth behind that dude, <laughs> really, right? which made it all the more hysterical. Uh, but, you know, they, they, they have a way of trying to control the message by controlling the social networks. And I normally do play nice in occasionally someone will go after me. And I'm not going to back down. But the second right. they start to go after me, if they are starting to use foul language or different types of slurs or something like that, it's like, wait a minute, I'm sitting here talking to you politely. And I'd like to have a civil mm-hmm. discussion and exchange of ideas. We can agree to disagree, but there's no need to hurl epitaphs at me, to call me names or anything else like that. And it got so bad that when I said... What you're saying is hypocritical. He turned around and told me I cursed at him. I mean, how is yeah. hypocritical saying someone that is being hypocritical a, a slander or a slur or anything like that? And it took a while before I got the guy back over onto my side. But you have to be really patient, and sometimes you got to talk dumb down to them truthfully. <laughs> well, and and too, so I'm with you. I want to win people over. To our side, I want to enlighten them. I want them to see, and maybe it's because I have five millennial kids who are across the spectrum, you know. And and then you almost can't fault the general public for not knowing any different, because unless they know some of these alternative media, you know, like your program and others trying to get the truth out there, all they see is the mainstream media, which, as we know, is is fake news. And so they don't, they form their opinions based on, you know, input, output. It's, they can only do so much. So I think in terms of a view of trying to win them over, but, you know, you have to call them out. Somebody was trying to say I was a bot yesterday in a post. I posted a tweet about the Oregon primary today. I had the opportunity to interview an ex exceptional candidate, the millennial running in Oregon, and he's just right on the mega movement. Very smart. I think it's exciting to have someone that young wanting to engage on the national level and represent not only Oregon, but his age demographic as a millennial in in U.S. Congress. And so I had a chance to interview him, and I was uh, promoting the show and giving him a shout-out because today is Oregon's primary and I must have had a hashtag in there or something that I got on some of the opposition came across their Twitter sphere, and they there was a tweet at Jack at Twitter support that I was a Russian bot or I was a bot, and and you know here I am talking to you clearly not a bot <laughs> hashtag not a bot. <laughs> I don't want to get my account messed up either. You know, they can wreak havoc on it. So I think that's a failing of the Twitter platform that they need to address that someone can't, you know, I I hope they they seem to do some due diligence to look into it. 
And I just replied. I said, it would seem to me, I'm just tweeting out, I respect your 1A. I didn't say anything negative to you, but it, it would seem by your wanting to report me that you're the one not playing nice in the Twitter sandbox. <laughs> so there, <laughs> don't put well, me on a bot list. Well, we got our, our co-host finally in in the studio over oh, here, yay. so welcome back, Curtis. Good afternoon, Curtis. Hey, Annie. Hi, Tamara. Hi, <laughs> Hi, Curtis. Glad you could make it. Oh, yeah, me too. I, I made it just in the nick of the time. It's about ready to pour down out here. Oh, it was pouring over here. I'm just I'm just a couple of hours north of uh, where Curtis is. I wanted to um, point out to you, there's something that came in the news. And, I'm, you know, um, first off, I've met James O'Keefe. And believe me, he's better looking in person. Oh, is he good looking. Oh. He's such a sweet, sweet man. I've also met yeah. Corey Lewandowski. And uh, Corey Lewandowski has a new job. He is now joining Vice President Pence's Political Action Committee for 2020. And it, I love this because there's so many rumors going out there, so much fake news that there's a rift between Vice President Mike Pence and the President Donald Trump. And this goes to prove that there is absolutely no rift by taking Cora Lewandowski onto Mike Pence's political action committee, that all three of them stand firmly together. I love the message. Talk yeah, about trendy. that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't heard that, but... Um... That's, again, the brilliance of Trump, of knowing how to... He reminds me of the way he moves people around strategically. Remember that? Um, and maybe you're old enough <laughs> to remember. Or I'm dating myself here. That little game that you would play that had the numbers on it, like 1 through 10 or whatever it is, and you would move them around and try and get them in order, 1, 2, 3, 4, across. It was like a little square and little squares in it. It's an, kind of how... Trump reminds me because you have to he he'll move people around strategically to get them lined up the way that he wants to, and so that does not surprise me that that just happened. And yes, very exciting. Well, speaking of uh, President Trump, and this really upset me because Melania Trump had a surgical procedure yesterday. And everything was done. I, I love the way he did it. Everything was hush-hush. He didn't say anything to anyone. Nothing leaked out. So she had mm-hmm. the complete privacy. You know, the, patera- the paparazzi, the, <laughs> the photographers, <laughs> the media were not running after her. Uh, my teeth are in backwards. Don't worry about it. But sometimes the Freudian slips are intended. Um, they were not there, you know, harassing the medical staff, the hospital, the other patients within the hospital, which was very important, mm-hmm. until after everything was over. Uh, but the backlash from the left and the things I saw being posted up on the social media for this poor woman, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Oh, uh, I saw some of that. Hatred is insane. Unbelievable. This is appalling. Go ahead, Curtis. The left, the left, as we know, they respond on an emotional level. Uh, I'm dealing with a relative now. <clears throat> I mean, this guy read my book. Just well, he read most of it until he got to parts that he he felt were too political, and he couldn't go on reading it. But I mean, these people, they they just I don't know. They're very intolerant, and if you know, if it doesn't agree with them, they don't want to. They don't want to move forward with it. Not even when it comes to reading a novel. <laughs> That's terrible. 
Yeah, just the vitriol and mean, I mean, just human decency. You don't attack like that. I always try and say, you know, I'll discuss the issues. I'll argue the issues, but no personal attack either way. But, you know, and, and some conservatives are, are just as guilty of the, the attack oh, and the name calling. That's I think so we should all be better. When I, well, when I, when I hear that, you know, on the conservative side, then I, I respond with, then you can't be a true conservative because a true conservative will live by the bylaws, love thy neighbor as thyself and approach every situation mm-hmm. as that. You know, always place mm-hmm. yourself in someone else's shoes before you, you go after their ideals or whatever their opinion is or whatever the issue is. But always do it with a civil discourse. If you cannot do that, then please do not call yourself a conservative because I don't know what you are. But you sure well, as heck do not belong to the conservative school of thought that I do. What they're doing is that they, they feel, and I'm talking about these new conservative types or neoconservatives, they think their way is the new way to go forward. So they're trying to redefine conservatism. And most of these people that I, I talk to, they are former Democrats who turn, you know, Republican, and they would like to call themselves conservatives, but they don't know the first thing about um, conservative values and principles. And like I said, well, in their their mind. Their way is the new way of doing things, and our way is passe. Well, Curtis, you just raised a brand-new question here, and I'm going to ask Tamara on this one, uh, because you do have individuals that were former Democrats, now voting Republican, claiming to be Republican, calling themselves neocons or calling them conservatives. And um, I can think a couple of them right off the top of my head, and I'm just not going to slander them. Well, I'm not going to slander them, but mention their names on air, except for my my personal senator, Lindsey Gramnesty, they they actually, I think they're trying to infiltrate, you know, our movement to try to divert it. I honestly do not believe that they are true at heart Republicans, much less a conservative. I think it's a way to try to usurp the movement or divert it and destroy it. Well, I would agree with that. And I think within what we saw out of the 2016 election and now hopefully we'll continue that wave into the 2018 midterms is either whatever you want to call it, a new party, the mega party, or, you know, we, we clearly saw that the rhinos and the Dems were a united party and it became the political class against the Americans and hold on to their powers. Not, I was just discussing this morning with someone about, you know, do we need the parties anymore? And absolutely not. They are, the parties exist because it's good for the parties to exist. As Americans, for the purpose of our government, we don't really need the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I mean, it just is how it's it's come to be in our two-party system. But I think the mega movement is such a disruptor that you did see those establishment within the parties realizing that their strongholds on the American people, on the political process, and on government itself and their their power being challenged in a way that 
only Trump was able to do, and and we the people have the power to take back. I think that is something we will see carry through the midterm elections. Yeah, well, unfortunately, or fortunately for us, the Democrats tend to ignore the Rust Belt, the flyover, the Corn Belt. They forget. They they tend to ignore that, and they concentrate all their efforts in the urban centers, such as San Francisco, L.A., New York, Boston, uh, Baltimore. They concentrate all on that, and and they pull all the majority of their power from those centers. But you look now at what's going on in California. You have even liberals fighting back at this point, saying, wait a minute, you've gone too far. Uh, There there was this one woman, um, I think she's a council member or something like that for San Francisco, who wrote the sanctuary city legislation out there. And I forget what her name was. She was up on Fox last night. She actually wrote the legislation which created for San Francisco to be a sanctuary city. And she's saying when they amended the legislation, they went way too far when they allowed felons to enjoy sanctuary. She goes, they've gone way too far. That wasn't the attempt. We now have massive homelessness on the streets. You have massive Mm -hmm. rise in crime rates. She goes, this was not the intent. You've actually taken what we thought was going to be something good and turned it bad. So they're turning on themselves now because they realize they've gone too far left. Yeah, well, what's happening in California this election cycle is very exciting. I've had the privilege to work uh, with real, uh, look, I call her Erin Cruz, at real Erin Cruz, and she is running against uh, Dianne Feinstein to fire Feinstein for U.S. Senate in the state of California. And she has got some great mega momentum behind her. She is 100% Donald Trump supporter. Not because of the man, which all of us within the mega movement, it's not that we uh, support with uh, dying affection or uh, cultish Trump supporter. It's because Trump just is taking the leadership position that we have felt about our country, that voice that was ignored, as Trump said, the forgotten man and woman no more. And so he just is the leader of the mega movement and what we're seeing in california with with real Aaron cruz omar navarra is running against maxine waters uh dr ken wright is running against ted lu um i know i'm missing one the governor and the attorney general um i know I, off the top of my head i can't remember all of them running in california antonio sabato jr Um, So I know Aja Smith, see, they'll come to me. (laughs) All of the ones we're trying to support and get out there because they have the mega mission, the freedom movement, the cleaning up the corruption in the state of California. And so I think it used to be the saying, so so go the coast, or as go the coast, so goes the rest of the country. And it's that flyover that you were talking about, Annie, that middle America. And it used to be middle America was buffered from the things, the trends, the influence uh, of the coast, both the east and west coast. And I'm Wisconsin girl, and so in that Midwestern flyover country state. And that was a good thing for us growing up. It, uh, I know it protected and buffered us. Well, now with social media and 
you know, the world really liter- literally and physically in our pockets with our cell phones. Uh, we don't have that kind of flyover protectionism. However, um, those values have also been able to go from the middle out. And I think what we're seeing on both of the coast is a reflection of maybe the solid values from flyover countries that those people want their country, their states back too. They've had enough of this out of control government and an agenda that's wreaked havoc on their states. So it's exciting. It is. It is. And matter of fact, we had uh, Douglas Gibbs on uh, recently. He's with the uh, Golden State. Oh God, Lord! I forgot what the the, the other word is. Uh, it, he, they're representing a lot of the people that you're talking about uh, running in California. Oh, good. Um, of the Golden State uh, Coalition. Okay, there goes the brain fart. Okay. Go, Golden State Coalition. And matter of fact, we have coming up in our show. Uh, I think next week, uh, Edwin. Duterte, if I, if I had that name right, he's running for the oh, House yeah. also. Oh, right, right. So, I missed him. Yep. Right. He's, uh, in the same um, race as Omar Navarro uh, from Acting Waters. Yes. And I support what I feel like with the primaries. I mean, he's a great candidate, too. And there are several of these uh, key races that you have more than one terrific candidates who have stepped up and said, I want to run. And I applaud that because I think competition makes the process better and what ideally i mean i don't know that we'll ever see this happen but ideally the parties if we're going to continue with the republican party being the conservative party would love to see that during the primaries they support they give the opportunity for any republican candidate and you know if the dems can do this great but well can the republican party and say you know if you're running We'll equally support you, give you an opportunity to have a platform and a voice. And then after the primaries, then we get behind the winning candidate. But it should be a level playing field up to and through the primary where the people choose. But what Trump pointed out was the rigged system, and it starts in our backyard with our local primaries, our local parties, and that the establishment pit gets the support. And, I mean, we saw that here in Wisconsin 01 with Nick Pulse, who is running. He's a Green Beret veteran running it. In the Ryan, uh, Paul Ryan seat, now with Ryan out of the race, it's uh, opened up a little bit more for him, but there's still an establishment uh, person running against him in the primary. But he was running up against that. It's like, no, Ryan's our guy. We're going to support Ryan. And uh, not giving voice equally to the other candidates and I think that's wrong I think we need to support anyone who wants to run let the people choose put your message out there and let like Trump he picked off how many you know 13 other opponents let the people decide and let the better candidate come through the process you don't try and silence the other voices in my opinion I think that would be great when when um Paul Ryan was up for a speaker. I had a conversation with my congressman, and he told me, Annie, let me just be truthful with you. A lot of these are, are done in the backroom deals. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. decided well in advance, and, you know, it doesn't matter what you say. And I said, well, I'm opposing Paul Ryan as speaker. And I told him why, who I felt mm-hmm. was the best pick. 
He goes, well, if these individuals don't start campaigning like almost a year in advance, they have no chance at all to become the next Speaker of the House. And that's a shame. That is mm-hmm. just a shame because that, that gives us no voice. So a bunch of old guys sit in the back room with a bunch of cigars and some scotch, you know, laugh at the people, we the people, and make the decision that will direct the rest of our nation. And, and that is a very, very sad thing. But Tamara, you know, I've had so much fun speaking with you. You definitely have to come back on the show because um, you have so much to talk about. You know, <laughs> it's, it's great to Thank see you. like-minded people having a conversation where you know we're not yelling and shouting at each other, but we're putting ideas out there for other people to enjoy and try. And I'd love to well, find I, out how the heck I can trend my show a little better. <laughs> trend your show a little better? Oh, sure, I can help you with that. Some little. <laughs> tips and tricks that we use, the secret sauce, as it were, behind the scenes of how to make that happen. Um, well, but I, I know can't I, figure I, that I out Google Analytics, so. <laughs> well, I mean, there is a methodology to the madness, and I'll, I'll send you the links to the my website blog, so you've got them there handy. that You can actually read through, sort of, I think you'll find it valuable in terms of applying to your own show. And what I enjoy and appreciate about being a guest on your show today, so thank you very much, is the opportunity to encourage others to think for yourself, to be informed, make critical decisions. You can look to others for advice, but at the end of the day, own your own vote, your own decision, passionate about your freedom, that it matters because like that in the blink of an eye it can be gone if we're not careful and I think Trump gave us an opportunity to take back our country and if Hillary had won we would be having very different conversations today than uh, had not Trump prevailed so it's been my pleasure uh, there's, there's an electricity in the air with him in office, and I want to let you know that there is a link on the show page here to your website. So in, as people listen to the podcast, all they need to do is just click on the link and see what you're all about. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. I appreciate that. So, yeah, and you can find right, me on Twitter at Tamerly LLC, and I'm all over all about the politics there. <laughs> Obnoxiously <laughs> so, as my kids would say. <laughs> I'm like, I'm working, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a blessed day, Tamara, and uh, I'm telling people to check out your website. And God bless all the hard work. All you right. Do. Thank you. Thank you, Annie. All right. Curtis. Have a great day. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. All right. Amazing, amazing guest. Uh, but we have another one up in the bullpen. And so let's bring our next victim in. His name is Bruce L. Hartman. Uh, he was the Chief Financial Officer for, uh, let me see if I can get this all correct, uh, Yankee Candle, Foot Locker, Cushman, and Wakefield. Uh, he is now, um, he's found the Lord, and he's got a book out called Jesus and Company, and it is an amazing book, so let's welcome aboard a Bruce Hartman. Good afternoon, Bruce. How are you today? Good afternoon. I'm great. Thank you for uh, having me on your show. Oh, it is our pleasure. I know you were supposed to be with us back on April 28th and with a little bit of a mix-up. <laughs> As I I'm like to say, defecation that. occurs, but <laughs> you're here today. <laughs> yes, yes, we are. 
now your your natural playground was the business world, and then you decided to take a new track in your life. Uh, tell us about your background and when you got the epiphany to turn your life in a different direction. Uh, well, I you know I worked in business, a fairly traditional um, career path. You know, went to college, um, got my uh, bachelor degree, and you know went to work for one of the big, uh, what you would call the big four accounting firms, which very traditional to do that to get training, and you know ended up working for another thirty five years, seventeen of which were spent as CFO for. Um, a lot of companies that you, you mentioned earlier, uh, Foot Locker, Cushman and Wakefield, and um, and Yankee Candle, and at some point um, decided to go back to college, get my master's degree, um, which I got in 2013 in Divinity, and then just recently I got my doctorate degree um, in ministry as well. So it's been it's been a it's been a wonderful experience, and it's. Um, been very interesting trying to combine both the business world and uh, the world of ministry. Now, it's funny because um, right out of college, I had my first business, and that was back in 1980. And um, I I think back, no, actually 78. Oh, geez. Boy, I'm dating myself well. now. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> if you live a Christian life, a true Christian life, not one that you claim to be, you naturally follow everything that's in your book. Um, and I, I thought about a lot of things that you wrote about in your book. And actually, last night I had to thumb through it real quick to refresh my memory. And it's like everything that I did is how you treat your employees, how you treat the customer. And as I was speaking with our prior guests, you know, we just follow the basic golden rule. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And if you think about how you want to be treated and treat everyone else the very same way you want to be, then we have no problems in life, honestly. Uh, absolutely. You know, and that's one of uh, – I try to keep too much uh, doctrine and uh, doctrinal, st- doctrinal statements out of the book because I wanted it to be a book where people thought about as opposed to debate. And – so one of the things that I that is embedded in there is exactly what you just said, the golden rule. And for any business, if you want to have a sustainable business, following the golden rule is, to me, either the first or second most important thing you can do. And if you're an employee, it's the I believe it's the same, it's the same loving your neighbor as thyself, or as you would want to be treated. And if um, you have customers, again, the same thing. So. It is fairly prevalent in the book, and that's what we uh, that was one of our key goals. Oh, it is. It is a very good thing because I think back to some of the employees I had, and one of the things you point out is that employees never really do any more than that you ask them. But if you encourage them to participate, you'd be amazed in some of the ideas that they can come up with that can make your business more efficient, make your customers even happier. And, and that's a problem we see. Today, it's like, oh, well, I'm just here to get a paycheck, go home and party on the weekend. Uh, but I've never approached a job that way. I always went into a job. As a matter of fact, I had managed a law firm in Great Neck, New York at one point, uh, and I increased productivity 40% within the first six months because I looked at it and said, how can we do this more efficiently? And then my boss, when he started to see the money being saved, you know, 
I didn't have to ask for a raise. I just turned around. He would say, hey, listen, you know, this is the bottom line. Uh, thank you, and here's a pay raise. Yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting. There's, there's, two, there's two things you can do in a conversation with an employee. One is you can tell them exactly what to do. And as you said earlier, generally employees will do exactly what you tell them to do, generally. And the reason is because they don't want to go outside the boundaries of what the instruction is. And it's not because they're um, poor or ill-equipped. It's just they're just being obedient. When you, ask a di- when you ask a different question to an employee, what do you think? Then you, you open up the boundaries for them to produce more, to excel, to get greater job satisfaction, um, and to feel like they're part of something that's bigger. So particularly in my uh, uh, strategies discussions with other folks, I always encourage them with employees, trust them, and ask them, what do you think? And that's something Jesus did as well. He was very probing with all of his questions. Um, and while most people would say he was an authoritarian, really wasn't. He wanted to get to know people and to ask them questions to reveal to him who they were. And this is the same principle as we have in the business world. Yeah, you know, it's funny because um, I pulled up my notes, and I'm going to show it before the camera from uh, when you were supposed to be on last time. And one of the first things I had written on that was um, that we look at Jesus in the Bible and see an extremely complex thing that only experts can understand and dictate the tenets of faith. Uh, whereas when you present it in your book, you bring them down to the everyday man and show them, no, you don't need to be an expert. You don't have to uh, be a student of divinity. You just need to stop, read read it, and then look to see how it applies to everyday life and what the message is. Because the Bible is a, a bunch of stories. And if you look at it as if you're reading a regular novel, you get a whole different message from it than what you hear being preached from the pulpit in many places. Now, you're absolutely right, Andy. The, uh, you know, after having spent almost the last seven years in divinity school, uh, I do see this overcomplicated view that theologians and academians have. But when you actually read the words of the Bible, and we, we I quoted Jesus a lot in the book, there's not a lot of long words, uh, not a lot of long words with many syllables in them. They're very simple. Like he will give give us very simple life lessons. Like don't put new wine into an old wineskin. That's how Jesus talked. And that's what, what I was trying to do with the book was reveal this Jesus to people that work. And it's also been, it's also, the book is also being very well accepted by people that don't work in business as well. And your comment is what, what we're hearing a lot, that people like it because it's practical and Jesus becomes accessible. Now, that's the problem because, you know, you have some people that preach in religion that, you know, you have to follow these strict rules. And Christ really didn't do that. He basically broke the rules. Every time you turn around, he was breaking some rules somewhere along right. the way. But you, you have to think, you know, outside the box uh, is what you're saying in your book and which is what Christ is saying. Look at some of the people he hung out with, the dregs of the world. And yet they were his best friends and his apostles. Yeah, G- Jesus didn't, doesn't show any bias to any person. 
for instance, two two of his better friends were Joseph Amorthea and Nicodemus, and those were those two gentlemen were responsible for um, a lot of his burial arrangements. And but they were very wealthy. However, Jesus also sat with and had dinner with a tax collector in Matthew, one of the very first uh, apostles, um, who was a tax collector, and he would have dinner with them in the local. Uh, religious elite of that time were very suspicious of why Jesus was having dinner with a tax collector. Now, what's interesting is the tax collector of that day was that was probably the most disliked profession. And other than shepherd, when you do a word search in the Gospels, you'll find out tax collector comes up the most. So Jesus is making a very important point, a very important point by having dinner and eight times. Uh, he mentions the tax collector in the Gospels. He's making a very important point that we're not to judge anyone, give everyone a chance, and find out what's in their heart. And the second thing is Jesus was, the reason why he changed things is he changed the world from thinking about the commandments legally to to thinking about the commandments from our hearts. Like, what is the right thing to do? And it and if we follow Jesus, we can always answer the question of what ought we to do. You know, it's, it's so true. And you give example after example about putting Christ in the marketplace. And people tend to forget. They they look at only the, th- the last three years of his life, but forget that prior to that, he was the son of a carpenter and he himself was a carpenter. So that meant he had to have customers. He had to operate in the marketplace. He had to know how the marketplace worked and then how he wove it into one parable after another after another. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very good point. Uh, scholars call this, the last time we see Jesus before he starts his earthly mission we see him at the age of 12. And if you follow the chronology, uh, his, the historical chronology, the next time we see him in the Bible, he's 30. So the scholars call this the hidden life. And what did he do from 12 to 30? Well, we get clues in the Bible, as you just mentioned, that he was a carpenter. But you also mentioned another very good point. When you read the parables, there's 42 of them. 35 have commercial language in them. So you would take from that that that's, an, that's a place that he understood and a place that he knew people understood, and that's why he talked about um, commercial language in the parables. But certainly Jesus was, um, was a business person, was a carpenter, and perhaps even owned his own business in Nazareth. Now, the, the third thing I did on this point that, you bring, that you're bringing up, Annie, is I went back and looked at some scholarly writing or ancient writing from the first century. And there are writings that are not biblical, written by independent sources that called Jesus a carpenter. For instance, Josephus refers to him as a yoke maker. So in other words, the yoke of an oxen or, uh, or a domesticated animal. So it is. It is out there, and that's what he did. Well, we just had a comment in the chat room. I just want to mention the comment that Kelly just put in the chat room, saying that Jesus Jesus wasn't a fan of the marketplaces and temples. You write about that in your book. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Jesus wasn't a fan. Wasn't a fan of the marketplaces in the temples. 
Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. For, for two reasons. One, as he says, he says, you're, uh, you're making my father's house a uh, den of iniquity. And the second, the second reason is, which is hidden in this story, it's the cleansing of the temple, which appears, by the way, in all four Gospels. So when you see a particular story about Jesus in all four Gospels, you know that both from a, a biblical sense, but also from a life sense, it's really important. The thing that Jesus was upset with is, number one, turning the temple into a marketplace and defiling God. But the second thing he was upset about was the merchants that were in the temple were taking advantage of a very pious population, by the way, either through um, having poor exchange rates when they had to exchange the denarii or the Roman currency or the currency of that period to the sacred shekel, which is the only way you could make a contribution or sacrifice uh, in the temple. Secondly, a lot of folks, particularly the pilgrims that came from the hills, wouldn't be able to bring their livestock. So they had to buy the livestock and they would do it in the temple. And again, at inflated prices. And not only that, after the livestock was being sacrificed, the merchants or owners of the temple would then sell it back into the market to be sold. So they were making money twice on that. So Jesus was upset because one, people, the people that were running the temple weren't loving my God. Two, they weren't loving their neighbor. And it's a very important story. Um, and it's also the, the story when you read all four of the Gospels. It is a story that is immediately followed by a verse that talks about the religious elite wanting to crucify Jesus. And many scholars believe that this is the incident that in the Passion Week that led to his crucifixion. Curtis, go ahead. Do you think there's any validity that um, Mary Magdalene wasn't a prostitute, but rather Christ's wife. Well, there's there's no evidence really either way, and it's always this is always a murky subject. Um, and I don't know if it's likely or unlikely uh, the answer for either one of those two uh, questions, but certainly Mary was an important character in the Bible and a very important person in Jesus' life for a couple of reasons. One is that by bringing a character like that in, similar to the tax collector, Jesus is talking about giving everybody a second chance. As to, In terms of her status in life, was she a wife or a prostitute? You know, it's kind of murky um, in, in that area. Um, and there's no hard evidence, evidence either way. Unfortunately, that that idea was propagated with Dan Brown's uh, book that he wrote, and uh, I found the book interesting, but I didn't quite put the connection like he did together. Uh, so it's really, really strange. But your book, Jesus and Company, uh, it can be found up on your website, which is your name, BruceHartman dot com. And I'll let you know that there is a link in our show descriptions so when people listen to this show in the podcast, which that's where we get the most hits. They just have to click on it and uh, get your book and learn more about you. You talk a lot about your uh, business experience in the book, and you state that you know, overall most people want to do good, but for one reason or another, uh, they don't. Yeah, that's, uh, it, it's, it's really interesting. 
uh, I believe, and I can, I think I can prove this statistically too. Um, and I do this often when I go into an organization that I'm working with or, uh, just into any organization. Generally, if there's 10 people sitting around the table, at least nine of them are there earnestly and want to do a good job. Um, over and over, you know, I've proven that, even within groups of people that I know um, through various organizations. And I really don't believe that the average person gets up in the morning and says, I want to screw up at work today. I think that the problem is, I mean, I just, I really don't think that. And I think if, if your listeners and, you know, you yourself think about the people that you know, who do you really know that the goal is to make, to make a mess at work? So that's really what the book is designed to tap into is to help employees have confidence in doing a good job and how to do a good job, but also for employers to learn about people and how to treat them. Well, it's funny because, you know, having employees and I, I look at it and most of the people do want to do good. You occasionally get someone that is a screw up. I mean, I had one one clerk that worked for me um, and she was way out there. I swear she must have been stoned half the time. Uh, but she calls and I call her because she's not at work and she picks up the phone and I said, well, so and so you're not here at work. What's going on? Is everything all right? She goes, Oh, I am, aren't I? And I says, no. And then you hear a pause and hesitate. Oh, I was dreaming I was at work. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> you, know, you occasionally get the one or two like that. Like, all right, take the rest of the day off. And if you want your job, it'll be here tomorrow. But if you don't want it, then don't be here tomorrow. <laughs> right. You, know, you, you, you do occasionally get those. Uh, but you also talk about the way... Um, Christ took, looked at his apostles as also as an employee. And there's certain things in, in your book that you explain that a lot of people don't understand. Because we look at the time period that we're talking about, you know, 2018 years ago, compared to today, uh, that what we call employees in, the, in that time era would be called a servant or a slave. And yet the slave doesn't have the same connotation as the American slave has. No, it's a it's a it's a different, um, completely different way of speaking. For for instance, you know, today slavery is a really difficult and um, burden that you place on somebody where they literally have no control over their lives. Slavery in those days, particularly in the Bible, it's more of a conversation between an employer and employee in terms of what they can and cannot do. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they have the same freedoms that employees today do, and they, and they didn't. But it wasn't the same level of bondage. So many times when uh, people read about slaves and servants, they are using contemporary language, and the word meant something completely different back 2,000 years ago, which isn't to say that modern slavery is appropriate because it really isn't. But when you're thinking about employees of today, you can make a connection back to the first century. You know, they were allowed to earn money and they were allowed yes. to have their own family. They weren't told where to go or what to do. They had a lot of freedom. 
It's just that, as you said, they weren't allowed certain things as a basis of their employment, you know, and they are free. They were free, you know, to go for another employment somewhere else. It's not the same as what we had, you know, during the Revolutionary War up through, you know, the the uh, Civil War. But also ser- right. servants had a different connotation. And yeah, servant also did. was an employee, but very respected. Yes, they were. And also servant in the first century is um, also connotes somebody of service to somebody else. Where servant here is somebody that waits on somebody, and you know this is a very important distinction to make. Um, you know, a servant in a home, you know, maybe it's a butler or a maid. Uh, but in those days, when you talked about somebody as a servant, it was different than how we would think about them today. And again, a, a much more elevated position than the um, servant of the 21st century. And then that brings me up to the apostles, where Christ looked them as not just as apostles, but as servants, which put them in an area of respect. Yes, yes. And, you know, Jesus himself, uh, he, Jesus never said he was the son of God. Jesus, that was always said, it's always said in the Bible by somebody else. And when you listen to Jesus's words and you read his words, he says, I'm the son of man, which is, he is there to serve mankind. Now, that's difficult, but that's what his father asked him to do. Um, so from that perspective, you also have to understand the perspective of that time. So, for instance, most kings of the first century, whether it was in Mesopotamia or certainly in Rome, they considered themselves to be son of gods. So, in other words, they were deities. So when Jesus uses these words, son of man, it's about serving mankind. Um, and not being served yourself or not calling yourself a God, which is was prevalent in that period. Now, today, our presidents and prime ministers don't consider themselves to be God, so it's hard for the 21st century um, society to understand that, that important distinction that Jesus was making. Well, I'm going to bring back over to where I said you know, that most people wanted to do good because in one area you talk about your experience at Foot Locker when the books weren't balancing and then you compared it to the parable of shaking off the dust from your feet. Uh, can you explain that? Because you know, sometimes employees will take the easy path and you're showing in your book that if you do follow the teachings of Christ, taking the right path, the correct path will get you further ahead than just being a yes man. Yeah, that's um, and again, that's an environment that that businesses can create. Um, you know, at Foot Locker, we always encourage people to try just a little bit harder. And it's amazing Annie, that it's not that much harder than what we normally would do. Um, and in the, the case that you were talking about, this actually saves Foot Locker from bankruptcy with this um, assistant treasurer stayed till 8 o'clock that night uh, with another employee and found the money, just enough money to get us to, I think she found $700,000 and we needed $350,000. And, but it was because she just put a little more time and effort into that. But it was also an environment where we didn't tell them a demand that they find it. We just encouraged them and just said, here's the problem, help us. And it's a very different way of managing employees 
when we watch TV, we always see bosses pointing the finger at people and telling them you do this and you do that. But that just doesn't work in the in the business environment. What really works is when you make partners with your employees. That's the truth. Curtis, go ahead with your question. Yeah, I got a, a different type of question for you. In matters of church and state, what are your thoughts about um, officials um, taking the oath on anything other than the Bible? Well, it's um, I think when you take an oath with the Bible, you're giving your you're giving your word not only to the the civil the civil authorities, but you're also giving your word to God. And if that's really what a government wants to do, it's a certainly a higher level of commitment to God than it is to civil authorities. Uh, so I think that that's something that. Um, if, particularly if civil organizations want to do that, you're certainly getting a should be getting a higher sense of commitment from somebody. In terms of church and state, you know, Jesus said, "Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God." And so, to be obedient to civil authorities is part of Jesus' teachings, but also, and more importantly, is to be obedient to God. And that, did that answer your question, Curtis? Yeah, to a degree, um, I was really thinking more in terms of a lot of Muslims using, you know, the Koran. Yeah, yeah, and and that's interesting. I was talking with a friend about that yesterday. You know, one of the great things about America is the separation of church and state. So, number one, the founding fathers, particularly Washington and Jefferson, uh, had saw what happened in the Thirty Years' War and then the um, re- revolution that occurred in England uh, that brought Oliver Cromwell to power and saw the people that lost their lives fighting over the church and state issue. For instance, most uh, Germans, 30, uh, 25% of Germans died during the Thirty Years' War uh, on this issue. Washington and Jefferson didn't want us as a people to have to deal with um, what should be the religion of America, but they also wanted to make sure we had the freedom of religion. So that's why the church in the first amendment, that's why that's in there. And it's not to say that we agree with any religion or don't agree with any religion, but we have the freedom of religion. The difference is with the Muslims. We lose our guest. They they have mixed. Well, you dropped uh, off there for a second, Bruce. Okay, sorry. So I I was talking about the the Shia law. It's not the same as the U.S. law, which is freedom of religion. The Shia law is a combination of civil authority with um, religious authority. So it's in particularly in a country like the United States, I think it's inappropriate. Mm. I, that I, I tend to agree with you on that one. It's an interesting uh, uh, situation we have here because you know under Islam, taqiyya is is allowable, you know, which is lying or lying through admission, uh, which is kidman. So you know when I see someone placing their hand on the Quran to swear an oath into office, I wonder how much they're telling the truth. You've got the uh, suitcase bomber in Times Square, New York, 
that when the judge asked him, uh, you swore an oath as an American citizen, the guy turned around and said, I lied, judge. Flat to his face. So I, I sometimes question well, the, the veracity of people that use the Quran. Yeah, what I'm talking about is just something different. You know, judging whether they're lying or not lying is certainly, whether it's with the Bible or the Quran or any or any time that you speak, even if you have your hand on a comic book and you're swearing, lying is not something we should do. And it's, but the what Jesus is saying is, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to the Lord what is the Lord. And our Constitution is set up very similar to that, where Washington and Jefferson set up a Constitution where there is civil authority, but also a higher authority of God. And the, but the two are not together. They're not a combined uh, entity, which is what is true with Muslim religion. Uh, but in the U.S., it's inappropriate for somebody to use the Koran as both civil authority and biblical authority. Well, I want to get back to your book, which is Jesus and Company, that people can get at your website, uh, which is your name, BruceHartman.com. Um, you talk about your wife in the book. She must be a wonderful lady. Um, she has three principles that she applies to people, that we have to pay our bills, we have to work to pay our bills, and we want a purpose and a connection with God. You know, talk to us about that. Yes, yeah, so it's, uh, you know, it's, I love talking to my wife because she always gets things right to the point. And so as particularly when I was writing the book and I'd be discussing things with her, she'd say, Bruce, listen, it's really three principles. We all have to pay our bills. And if you think about it, 95% of the people that walk this earth, and particularly in the U.S., eventually have bills, unless you're a trust fund baby or some, some other reason. But just the vast majority of people have to pay their bills. Jesus knows that and God knows that. But to pay your bill, you have to work. So when I hear... Um, some of our own religious elites say that working is sinful. You always have to ask them, well, how are they going to pay their bills? And, you know, Jesus understood that, and that's why so many of the parables relate to working in the workforce in the marketplace. The third, which is even more interesting, 90% of Americans believe in God. 75% of them believe in Jesus. And that gets to the point that people believe that there is a higher authority and there is a, an entity that is sovereign to them. Um, and these statistics, whether you read the Gallup polls or Pew Research or the Harvard Research Institute, they always come in around the numbers that I just talked about. So we do have to, we do have bills. Nobody's going to escape that. Um, two, you do have to earn money to pay these bills. And three, in the heart of most people, and particularly with the statistics from American, from the American point of view, have a heart for God. You know, it's funny because we look at society today, especially the media, and they try to make us a secular society. But that that's not what we ever have been. But they do it more and more. And when you take away someone's faith, their belief in a higher power, then suddenly they don't have something to strive for except for self-gratification. And that is where we're seeing a lot of people fail because they don't have a purpose in life, which I think is very important is what your wife points out. You have to have a purpose. 
There's a reason right. for us to be here. We may not understand what the reason, but find out what what your reason is. And for me, right, you know, it, it could be making cherry tarts is my my passion. But uh, there is you need a moral fiber in which to guide us with, and which is what God provides and what you explain in your book as being. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's in. I I think that's um, in the heart of. Most Americans, uh, is exactly what you just said, you know, to, to be able to get up in the morning and do something that you love. And when you know you're helping other people, that is really where you're going to start to feel the true passion of your and purpose of your life. And as well as having a strong, a, a very, uh, connected prayer life with God. Those, those are really the two ingredients, but back to this issue of American secular secularism, it, we are putting Jesus in the closet, and, and and that's why I wrote this book was to bring him out of a closet. And to tell you a story, when I later in my career was at where I was the number two person for Yankee Candle, the HR person came into my desk and said, "You know, you have a Bible on your desk, and that's against the rules." So I, you know, kind of looked at her a little bit of askance and said, "Show me where that says that in our policy manual." And she couldn't. She says, well, it's kind of a rule. It was not kind of a rule in my office. Unless you can show me that that's the rules of the the, uh, the company that's staying on my desk. And what she didn't know is that a lot of people came into my office and shut the door because the Bible was on the desk because they had a problem and they knew I would listen to them because the Bible was there. So this putting Jesus in the closet, which occurs in the media and people are uncomfortable uh, with Jesus. It's kind of a secular phenomenon that's occurred within the last 30 or 40 years. But we can talk about Tom Brady in the office, and we can talk about Buddha in the office, but we can't talk about Jesus in the office. It's very inconsistent in terms of what we will and won't do in the office. But the book was written to bring him out of the closet. Well, that you did, and when you put him in the marketplace, you actually made him very personal and easier to connect with. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, Trump has been in office a little over one year, and um, he's already cut one campaign campaign promise to move our embassy to Jerusalem. Now, he has seven years left, I hope, and um, but what are our chances of getting prayer back into the schools under Trump, and should we? Well, again, the, the prayer the pr- prayer in the schools is, is a very difficult issue because it's, most schools are civil. And again, if you go back to the Constitution of the First Amendment, we have the there is no established religion in America, but we all have the right to believe whatever we want to believe. And I do think it's stretched too far uh, back in the 60s when they took prayer out of the schools. Um, so I don't I don't really see that prayer in the schools will come back because of the way the First Amendment is written. Um, should it, certainly I would vote for it, but I also understand why it, um, why it went away. Um, and in terms of, you know, keeping this, this state in – the civil authorities and the sovereign nature of God 
separate. You know, Jesus talked about it again, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. And it's each person's personal choice when they pray. And I do believe you should pray every day and um, that it should be a continuous conversation. But to put the burden on the school to instruct children to pray every day, I think is more of a parental responsibility than it is for the teacher in the school or the principal. And that's kind of how I, not kind of, that's how I feel about it. So don't think it's going to come back, but it's still the parent's responsibility. Yeah, there is uh, several different organizations, though, that are educating people on the First Amendment because it says Congress shall not create any religion nor prohibit the free expression thereof. And this is where people get it wrong time and time again. They prohibit the free expression. There was that one five-year-old girl who wanted to pray over her lunch before she ate it, and she was reprimanded for that. There are organizations that want to have you know, Christian clubs in the school, but they're being prohibited because they're saying it's a mixture of church and state. That's not what the Constitution says. You cannot prohibit yes. the free expression of religion. So we have to educate people exactly what the First Amendment is and then defend our First Amendment rights. So My your, your point is, is your, 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 your point is extraordinarily important. You, you, if, if a child is in school and the, their family prays before they have a meal, and I do believe all families should do that, they shouldn't be restricted from it because there's nothing in the Constitution that says that they can't pray over their meal, nothing. Um, and again, but it's the secularism of Jesus putting him in the closet that is what we have to resist. And so I think your point is really well made. Um, particularly as it relates to prayer, but you will you will again, see we have to educate. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. You will, yeah. You will see in schools clubs of all kinds, and I don't know why there can't be a Christian club. Um, you know, if there's a Muslim club, and if there's a Buddhist club, and there's a club football or club hockey, it's all a personal person's interest. And they should not be restricted, particularly if clubs are available in other forms. So I agree with you on that point as well, Annie. Well, this, this is what we have to educate our kids about and educate the public about, which is why your book is so great, because it brings it down into the business and into the home. Um, you talk about the importance of also networking. You know, Christ was excellent on that one. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me. Uh, and obviously, because he's God, I should not be amazed. But I'm still amazed that he can send somebody into Jerusalem and say, come out with a colt and a donkey that I can ride in on. So it, part of the reason why it's amazing to me is when I start looking at the historical context of the first century, you know, this is like borrowing somebody's car. And, uh, you know, particularly the merchant who handed over the colt and donkey, he handed over two, um, two, it would be the equivalent of two cars to what appears to be somebody that is just randomly asking for it. But we, we all know that that wouldn't have happened. So one of the things that Jesus did is he networked and he showed people he cared so he could make these audacious requests. Um, and that it would always um, come back 
to him in form, in this case of the entry to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it's an amazing story when you think about giving away two of your cars to allow some, a neighbor to, to take, take them for the day. Uh, certainly there's a higher purpose, and certainly you know, Jesus is a higher purpose, but that's the type of thing he did. And the other thing Jesus didn't do is he didn't sit at his desk all day. He walked at least 20 miles in a day. And for three years, he roamed the Judean and the Galilean countryside. So if you think about it in a week, certainly more than 100 miles. And meeting people, um, as opposed to sitting in a, uh, at a chair or at a desk and having people come meet him. You know, that's the importance of uh, the networking, because he built himself a reputation that was so strong, so powerful, that he could do something like that. He could turn around to someone and say, well, tell this innkeeper that I need this room, you know, right. or tell, go out there into the crowd and get this horse and, and donkey. You know, he had the reputation, right. but just on his word, people will do things for him. Yeah, yeah think about the, uh, the, loaves, the loaves of bread and the fish, which he borrowed from a boy to feed 5,000 people. Um, you know, just imagine in those days getting fed every day was a big deal. It's not like here where we can just go in our cupboard. Uh, scarcity of food was a big deal. And for this boy to give up all of this to Jesus, who he did get more than he gave uh, back, the boy, you know, the 12 baskets. Um, but it is amazing the, some of the stuff that Jesus did, particularly when you think about that period you know, loaves of bread and fish were a very rare commodity. And I think, um, I forget which apostle it was, but did tell Jesus that would be six months pay. Imagine taking six months pay or having somebody give you six months of pay. And that's what Jesus was able to do because of his reputation. Well, you, you talk about the, the importance of good ethics and the reputation, but also of delegating whatever you need to get done. You know, he was able to turn around and say, go out and talk to these people or go out and speak to this person. He was able to delegate some of the things that he needed to be done to people who would become then true believers. Oh, certainly. Um, and it, it, a couple of reasons he was able to do that. Number one, he did it himself. This wasn't somebody sitting behind a desk just saying, oh, go do this and go do that. You know, we see that on TV and in the media all the time. That's not how Jesus managed it. He did it himself. But it was also about having people learn how to do it. So, for instance, um, the, we just went past Ascension, uh, the Ascension Day, I think it was three days ago. The, the day after Ascension Day, Peter preached in Jerusalem and uh, recruited 3,000 new Christians just out of that one sermon. So you say to yourself, he, he prepared Peter, he trained Peter, he showed Peter, and in one day, Peter acquired for uh, the Lord 3,000 new converts. That's delegation. Uh, that is, that is. Your book is really powerful, Jesus and Company. I'm looking at the clock. Gosh, we only have 15 minutes left. <laughs> Has this shown really flown? Um, but he was also a team builder. He realized he couldn't do all this on his own. He needed to put together a team. 
and then have those teams go out and recruit more people. Uh, again, the networking idea. Oh, yes. It's, that's one of my favorite stories. Um, and, uh, you know, prior to writing this book, this was one of the favorite things people like to hear me talk about. None of the 12 were f- trained theologians, not one of them. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is uh, because they became more identifiable to the people of that time. And theologians were viewed by the masses at at that time as somebody just told them what to do, but didn't help them with their heart. The second reason why Jesus did that um, is he wanted new people. He wanted a fresh, people with a fresh idea, because he knew that if he tried to do it with 12 theologians, they would resist him at every turn. So he has these 12 extraordinary men um, that are set up to catapult this great, uh, this great organization, this uh, wonderful thoughts about God, which has turned into being the largest organization in the world. But he picked them very well. Now, when you're working in business, there's a direct correlation. So when you're sitting at your desk and you have a job opening, you know, you're always asked to look for a resume, and you get these resumes. The mistake most businesses make is they hire off the resume and not off the person's heart. So one of the things we would do at Foot Locker, we had five things that we were looking for. Number one was the person, did the person have integrity? Two, did they know how to get things done? You know, some people just have an ability to have work just happen because of how organized they are and how they think about things. Three, do they listen to learn? Some people listen to rebut. Other people really listen to find out what, what they have to learn. Um, the fourth thing that we would look for is can they develop people? Do they make other people around them better? And then the fifth thing was obviously do they think about the facts that have been presented to them? Do they analyze effectively? So if you have somebody that can answer, you can answer a strong yes to for the five things I just laid out, and maybe they have an inferior resume, I would still hire that person. And that's the, and that's the model of what Jesus did by hiring a tax collector, three fishermen, um, even a zealot, because he knew their hearts were to get things done, to be honest, and to try hard, and to get other people to follow them. You, know, you talk about you know hire, hiring people, and I, I think back to the times where I did that or where I would interview, and people don't understand how important that is, that one-on-one face-to-face interview. I don't understand how a company can hire people just over the Internet. Uh, just fax me a resume, and then they hire someone, or just email me it. I, I don't understand that. I need to know who I am hiring, who I am working with, what sort of reputation, how do you present yourself. I'm sorry, if you come into my office with a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops, that's strike number one. You know, How do you present yourself, and how do you get your message across? And right. again, this is what you point out in your book, the importance of all of this and how we put it into our daily lives, into action. Yes, 85% of uh, when you... Look at what who gets hired and how they get hired. Eighty to the the, the, st- the statistics the statistics vary depending on whether you believe LinkedIn or um, you know um, some of the blogs. But somewhere between seventy five and eighty five percent of people get jobs through their network. Um, now the this new phenomenon 
you know, particularly through Indeed and Simply Hired. Uh, two, those are two internet sites where an employer can ask to have people post resumes. What a lot of people don't know um, is that there's a computer or a robot selecting you. And it gets to the very point you just made that how do you know, how does a robot know the heart of an individual? So when, when I do counseling, particularly for people who are looking for a job, I ask them to read the job description, and when they see a word more than two times, so three times, then they should make sure that's included. If if it's honest, they can include it in their resume, and they have a greater chance of, um, of being selected by the robot. And a lot of companies now farm out the resume searching to first and second year HR folks who just know what they have in front of them, but they don't know how to look for people. So healthy businesses don't farm out the selection process or the candidates simply just by looking at resumes. They actually do put the they put some elbow grease into it and get to know the people. And again, you can't find somebody can't find out if somebody wants to wear a Hawaiian shirt sandals to work simply just by looking at their resume. Well, there was one trick I did, and it worked every single time, is that when I did my resume and I had it printed out, I had it printed out on the rice paper. I put it on high-quality paper. So every time I handed it to the person interviewing me, they would always hand it back. Oh, I don't want to keep your original. We'll we'll photocopy. I said, no, that is the copy for you. And they would be so impressed that I put that much effort into just that presentation that they would always turn around and do a second look. Uh, I never walked away without an interview with that. The presentation, how you present yourself, is so important. And again, you explain this in your book about Christ's interpersonal uh, uh, talents he had. I know, Curtis, I'm yeah, going to let you get your question in, but I just wanted to follow that thought up. Yeah, what you're doing is you're honoring the, you're honoring the interviewer. Um, and you're saying to them, I respect you, and this is why I'm doing it. And people that are successful in interviews, that's the attitude that they have. So, yeah, I know Chris has been trying to um, throw Curtis, an answer, go ahead, a question. <laughs> yeah, man, he has a uh, we, we give him a fidget question. spinner, so every time I cut him off, he uses it. <laughs> go ahead, Curtis. <laughs> what, what role should uh, religion play in business? And my, my second question is, I used to stay in hotels and motels and, I used to always see a Gideon Bible. Um, I don't see that too much anymore. Has the hotel industry shied away from religion? No, I think uh, the answer to your – I'll get back to your first question after I answer the second part. I think it's more of a cost-cutting issue. Um, It was, you know, particularly when America was far more religious, um, back in the 50s and 60s, it became a custom. but I think now for corporations, um, it's more of a cost issue um, than it is a societal issue. So, I mean, it is disappointing that, you know, because at least the three of us would love to have a Bible in the hotel room, and it is disappointing that we don't see it. But for um, the hotels, it's really become a cost issue that they've taken away to make themselves more profitable. Um but I also believe today, in today's age, you know, you can have a Bible on your phone, your iPad, or your computer. Uh, so I don't see it as big an issue as I would have if I didn't have access 
in the past. Now, if you take a company like Chick-fil-A, um, to me, I admire them because, one, they don't open on Sundays. I don't agree with all their points of view, but I do agree that they're expressing it from a Christian viewpoint. And when you go into a Chick-fil-A store or a restaurant, there's always a crowd. The, the employees are always friendly. Uh, the people there are always happy. It's just a different environment than when you go into a McDonald's. And I think comparing Chick-fil-A to McDonald's is really a good example of how to compare um, a Christian-based business with a secular-based business. And I think it would be an important lesson for businesses that aren't Christian-based. The second, second thing is Tyson's Food has 50 chaplains that they've hired that work in their that work in their factories and in their offices, and to me that's an amazing thing that that a corporation has done is that they've brought Christians into the workforce to help people with their faith. So it exists out there, and these are great companies. Two of there are many great uh, Christian businesses. Here's two of them, and here are the things that they do. So, you know, the answer to your first question is you can definitely be a Christian-based business. And I think not only by being Christian-based uh, do you improve, improve the performance, but you also enrich people's lives. Well, um, we're down to our last few minutes, Bruce. I want to thank you for joining us. But I just want to make one last observation before we end up closing up the show. I don't know if anyone is aware that this is National Police Week, National Law Enforcement Week. And today in Washington, D.C., they had the ceremony for the 199 law enforcement officers that were killed in the line of duty just last year. Um, and if anyone had watched the ceremony, I was in tears. And my stepson was sitting there watching on TV with me and saw me crying. And he got upset because I was crying. Uh, but please, guys, just if you see a law enforcement officer out there, thank them for their service. And if you get a chance to watch up on YouTube or on wherever uh, the ceremony, it was extremely touching. He reached out into the crowd and mentioned people that were not on the stage and talked about them, brought even a family up of someone we honored on the show uh, not too long ago, Detective Familia, a fellow NYPD officer. Uh, so guys out there, please remember it's National Police Week, the sacrifice that these men and women give just to keep and protect you every single day is so important. Bruce, I want to thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, your book is Jesus and Company. They can get it at your website, which is your name, very simple, BruceHartman.com, correct? Yes, and they can also buy it on, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, you know, any Internet. Um, you know, Amazon and Barnes & Noble are probably the two easiest. Um, and it's also in all the major bookstores and uh, throughout the country. Well, you do hard work out there, and God bless you for that. And uh, I welcome you back anytime. Yes, no, thank you for having me, and uh, Curtis, thank you for some really insightful uh, questions as well. <laughs> yes, we do read the books. <laughs> we do read the yes, books. <laughs> and yeah, and you know it well, so I'm really happy to hear that, Annie. So thank you. All right. Bruce Hartman, uh, check him out. Check out his website, BruceHartman.com. The book is Jesus and Company. Curtis, we're down to our last few minutes, and uh, we will be back here on Friday. Oh, we got Doug Giles. He's got a brand-new book out also. But we also have uh, – oh, this is great. 
we've got Philem and Anne McAleer. They've got a new uh, play out there uh, about the climate change hoax. Remember, they're also the people that produced the Gosling, the movie, also Ferguson. Uh, they'll be joining us. Um, oh, wait a minute. Oh, I got, oh, I'm sorry. I got the wrong weeks. I got the wrong one up. Uh, Edwin Duterte is going to be with us on Friday. And then Karen Strahan and Dr. Paul Nathanson will be joining us this Friday. Doug Giles and uh, Ms. Philem uh, and Ann McAleer will be the following Friday. I got my dates mixed up. But, uh, folks, that's all we got for the show. Curtis, uh, anything going on with you before we sign out? Well, I will be in Atlanta, Georgia, Thursday, but I'll be back on the show Friday. I got a book signing in. So you got a book sign, book signing in Atlanta. Great. Curtis, I'll be talking to you a little bit later on this week. And until then, I say to everyone, good night and God bless. And I'll leave you with our closing number when the roll is called up yonder. Until then. Thank you.